to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding, and when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. And so they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after all the guests have become drunk. But you've kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. On Friday, May 29th, the morning before our wedding, Susan and I went to the courthouse in Pontiac, Michigan. The previous Friday, I had uh, graduated from college, and the Friday before that, I'd had surgery on both knees. Needless to say, that whole period of time was more than a little interesting. When we got to the clerk's office, a very nice woman told us that we couldn't pick up our marriage license there, you know, in the county where we were going to be married, because we had to get the license in the county where we'd had our blood tests taken. For the youngsters, uh, you used to have to get a blood test in order to obtain a marriage license. That was actually a thing. Anyway, the clerk's news was pretty distressing to us, as you might imagine, primarily because Susan and I went to college in Lansing, Michigan, which was where we'd gotten our blood tests a month or so prior. The problem, of course, is that Lansing is halfway across the state. I mean, how was I supposed to know? Like, I mean, this was before the Internet. You couldn't just find that information on your iPhone. Okay, and fine, I was 22 and not especially used to planning ahead. But the other wrinkle that the clerk threw into the mix 
We needed to have our birth certificates with us. Now, why was that a problem, you might ask? Because my birth certificate was at my parents' house in Grand Rapids, which is all the way on the other side of the state. We had a wedding rehearsal at 6 o'clock that night. It would have been impossible for me to drive all the way to Grand Rapids, pick up my birth certificate, and then drive back to Lansing to pick up the marriage license, and then get back in time for the dress re- or the, the rehearsal in Detroit. Additionally, when we called the judge's office in Lansing, the, the clerk told us that we had to be there by 3 o'clock because the judge was leaving early to head to the lake for the weekend. Oh, what to do? Well, I called my mom and I told her our situation. Luckily, my, my parents and my sister and brother were coming to Detroit that afternoon <clears throat> for the rehearsal. So I asked them, would you please just bring my birth certificate with you? And then you can meet us at the college that we attended in Lansing. We can meet in the parking lot. And then they could stop and pick up my dad and my brother's tuxes at the mall while Susan and I went to see the judge about getting our marriage license. Because the, the, the tux store in Grand Rapids moved the order to a tux store in Lansing, which, of course, thank goodness. A lot more complicated than I'd planned. Okay, fine, but, and I'll take the rap for the not good planning thing, but I mean, it was still theoretically doable. So when Susan and I got to the college, we sat and waited for my family to show up. And finally, about 2.30, my folks limped into the parking lot. My dad's car was overheating. It was a record hot weekend in Michigan in May up in the 90s. Well, they weren't going to be able to drive my dad's car. That was clear. So I said, well, hop in. We'll take you to the mall and you can get the tuxes while we go see the judge. And so my mom, my dad, sister, brother, Susan, and I crammed into my unair-conditioned four-cylinder 1981 Ford Escort two-door. And I sped off to the mall. I say sped, by which I mean labored pitifully. And after dropping off the family at the mall several hundred pounds lighter, Susan and I tore off across town to find the judge by which I mean I drove noticeably faster. We got to the judge's office at 2.57, but just under the wire. After we told her we were there to pick up our marriage license, the clerk said, oh, I'm sorry, the the judge has already left for the lake for the weekend. You'll have to come back Monday. And we turned white, and our mouths just sort of dropped open. I said, but he wasn't supposed to leave until three. The clerk must have taken pity on us because she said, well, all right, what's your name? So we told her and she said, oh, okay. Yeah, the judge left early, but he went ahead and signed your marriage license. Finally, one thing went right. We shouldn't have gotten too cocky about it, though. When we drove back to the mall to pick up my family, my mom met us outside the tux shop and she said, they didn't get the order transferred. 
and they might not have any tuxes that fit in stock. And of course, I just rolled my eyes by that time because what else are you going to do, right? And then she said, and I think your father might be having a heart attack. I said, wait, what? She said, he's turned white and he's complaining about a pain in his chest and shortness of breath. I think all the stress, he might be having a heart attack. Lovely. Well, the tuck store finally found something to fit my dad and my brother, but they, they weren't going to be able to take my dad's car, so we had to drive back to the college, get all their suitcases, load up the tuxes, and get back to Detroit by 6 o'clock in rush hour traffic on a Friday afternoon. By the time we got on the road, it was already past 4.30. So with six grown adults, four sets of luggage, and two tuxes, we set off to the wedding rehearsal in my unair-conditioned four-cylinder 1981 S Ford Escort two-door in 90-degree heat during rush hour. We arrived about 10 minutes late. My Ford Escort having a serious asthma attack in the parking lot. But with the marriage license, two tuxes, and a dad who had not yet succumbed to a myocardial infarction in hand, we went in. I can't speak for anybody else involved, but it was one of the most stressful days of my life. And after the rehearsal, a person very close to me said, you know, in this whole comedy of errors, makes you wonder if this is a sign. Maybe God's trying to tell you something. Now, I thought I knew myself pretty well, but it turns out that wasn't really the right thing to say to me <laughs> at that point. But, you know, I got to thinking about it, and I've thought about it for 35 years. If it was indeed a sign, what was it supposed to communicate? I mean, was it meant to tell Susan and I that we shouldn't get married? Was, I, was that what uh, this was all about? Or what, what, was there a lesson that I was supposed to take away from this? I'll tell you one thing. I never bought another unair-conditioned Ford Escort. But after almost 35 years of marriage and three kids, I'm still not entirely sure if it was a sign what it was supposed to say to me. Because, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Signs are meant to point towards something other than themselves. And we don't post signs for their own sake so that people will wander past and say, hmm, well, you know, that's really a beautiful sign. I don't know what it means, but it sure is pretty. The sign said, long hair freaky people need not apply. I'm not sure what they have against long-haired freaky people, but I find it unnecessarily hostile and offensive. Sign, sign, everywhere a sign. Blocking out the scenery, breaking my mind. Do, do this, don't do that. Can't you read the sign? Now, in my case, 
with an I Love Lucy episode and trying to get the marriage license the day before we were to be married, the, the answer to this day is still, no, no, I actually, I can't read the sign. I don't know what it's supposed to be saying. Now think about our gospel this morning, about, about another wedding gone off the rails. The wedding at Cana of Galilee. It's a good story, famous story. Remember, Jesus turns the Perrier into Pinot Noir. Pretty famous. As first impressions go, Jesus, I mean, he does pretty well here, doesn't he? This is right at the start of things, right back in chapter 2. The blue laws had all the liquor stores locked up tight for the day, and the open bar at the reception started running dangerously low on Robert Mondavi. What are we going to do? The guests are getting restless. I'm not sure if I've mentioned it yet or not, but weddings can be fairly stressful. So Mary says, all right, let me handle it. I'll talk to the boy. And within moments, verse 11 tells us Jesus' ministry was launched into the stratosphere. Now, looking out over the dance floor, we can get a sense of who's there, right? I mean, there's Jesus and there's Mary. There's the bartender, the, the gray-haired DJ who still thinks Color My World is a romantic ballad that no self-respecting reception can do without. There's the bridal party. There's loopy Aunt Doris that you had to invite because she's related to your mom in some way you really don't have the fortitude at the moment to explore. Not to mention the garden variety, high school teachers, hairstylist friends, and football slash professional wrestling watching buddies that seem to show up at every wedding. But of course, the parents of the bride and the groom are wandering around making sure that everybody's having a good time. And will you please eat some more of this roast beast because Harold doesn't want to have to eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the next two and a half months. And presumably, the, the, the bride and groom haven't yet taken off for their two-week getaway to Sandals in Jamaica. And of course, the disciples are there. I mean, they're all there. And pretty soon, everybody's whispering about the bartender having run out of the one thing that's actually keeping Aunt Doris at bay. So then, of course, Jesus launches his ministry by turning the water into wine after supplies at the open bar had gotten low and the hors d'oeuvres had started to turn to spinnerbait. Everybody was happy. Actually, after Jesus did his part for the effort, everybody was really happy. It's a miracle, right? Turn the water into wine. Sometimes called Jesus' first miracle. But see, that's not what John calls it. In John's gospel, Jesus doesn't do miracles. He performs signs. John says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. But I mean, you know, come on, it's the difference really, right? I mean, miracle or signs is kind of the same thing, isn't it? Well, it turns out they're not the same thing. Miracles are things that are performed for their own sake. Jesus comes upon a sick person, heals them, it's all great, that's good. But a sign is something that Jesus performs that's meant to point beyond itself. 
towards some larger truth. In fact, John uses the word semion, from which we get the word semaphore, right? Semiotics, the study of signs. So what's the larger truth toward which Jesus' foray into winemaking is supposed to point? Well, as Dr. Elizabeth Johnson has suggested, wedding banquets are often referred to in Scripture as an image of the restoration of Israel. And wine is frequently used as a symbol of the joy and celebration associated with salvation. Amos speaks of the day when the the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Isaiah speaks of the feast that God will prepare for all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines strained clear. The abundance of fine wine is a symbol of the abundance of joy that awaits not only Israel, but all God's people on the day of God's salvation. In other words, when Jesus shows up at a wedding feast and performs a sign turning the water into wine, he's not just doing a miracle that lets the wedding coordinator off the hook for poor planning. He's announcing that the reign of God has dawned and the day of God's salvation is here. And what does the day of or the reign of God and the day of God's salvation look like? Well, it looks like a wedding feast where the wine is flowing and there's plenty enough for everyone. Jesus has arrived on the scene and he's bringing joy and life and abundance with him. Salvation is being welcomed into a party where nothing is lacking, where everyone gets to drink and dance and settle into a world that's a showplace of God's love. The rest of John's gospel is an exercise in narrating the possibilities of a world where everybody is invited to the party and nobody has to settle for crumbs and leftovers because there's enough to go around. In a world where people take hostages in a synagogue on the Sabbath, where people actively plot to take away the freedom and democracy guaranteed them through the free exercise of the franchise, where people lie in ICUs with a machine breathing for them while their family's forced to watch on an iPad, we need some good news. Good news about a wedding feast with well-aged wine strained clear, flowing freely for everyone. In an age where our siblings live in fear of the police or of ICE or of the bill collector on the other end of the line, where people can be fired from their job or kicked out of their apartment because of whom they love, where houselessness is a problem to be managed instead of an opportunity to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, we could stand to hear about the dawning of a new age where fear and hatred have taken the red eye to Topeka and love fills every wine glass at the party. But the thing about all of this is the signs of the reign of God, the day of God's salvation aren't just for us. In so many important ways, they are us. The lives we live, the joy we bring, the abundance we embrace, the hospitality we offer are all signs that point toward God's intention to have the world God desires. 
So maybe the question isn't, can't you read the sign? Maybe the question is, can everybody else read the sign in us? Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.